Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am so happy to announce my episode with B.D. Wong, director of the new show Yes, I Can Say That, now playing at 59E59 Theaters. Based on the memoir of the same name by Judy Gold, the show is a meditation on the intersection of comedy and cancel culture. You may also have seen today's guest on Broadway stages in M. Butterfly, for which he won the Tony Award, You're a Good Man Charlie Brown, Pacific Overtures, and Face Value. He's also a veteran of the screen, having appeared for 14 years as Dr. George Huang on Law and Order, as well as in such projects as Oz, All-American Girl, Jurassic Park, and currently Aquafina is Nora from Queens. And now, without further ado, here's B.D. Wong. <laughs> Well, so I'd love to start by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? And how did that first happen? Well, I, I, I began as a musician. I was a young kid who sang in the choir and then eventually played musical instruments, or no, played a musical instrument. I played the violin. And then when I was in high school, in the very beginning of being in high school, a teacher came into class and asked for volunteers to play in the school musical orchestra. And, but I had this friend who had been in community theater, this very like theatrical young woman who um, encouraged me not to do that. She said the action was not in the orchestra pit, it was on the stage. And so I, um, I kind of, secretly wanted her to make me go to this audition or these tryouts for this school show and um she did she took me and I went and that and that is when I met my drama teacher who really was a a very super influential person in um, directing the course of my life in this direction and um I don't know how much to tell about it but you know it's like my whole high school career and my whole, the foundation of everything that I do now is based upon my relationship with her Uh and her encouragement of me to uh, take my potential really seriously, like to to realize that my potential that she saw in me, that she tried to point out to me, you know, that she tried to really like, you know, um, reinforce with me, that potential was a part of, the identity of who I was. It wasn't just kind of like something I kind of liked. Um, so it was through this kind of accidental re, you know, redirection of, 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 well, I was gravitated to the musical anyway, though. You know, I was, I, I've always loved musicals and I've always been, gra- you know, I gravitated right towards it. I wanted to have anything that I could have to do with it. I wanted to be a part of it in some way. And I, I think I really wanted to be on stage. And so it was really great that somebody made me do it. And were your parents supportive of your interest and your desire to be an actor? 
Yes, they were. And well, you know, it was a long conversation with them. And the conversation really also included my teacher, Mrs. Chanis, who uh, played an active role in talking to them about it because they were um, the children, my parents are the child, were the child or the grandchild, at, you know, and the grandchild of immigrants. And so um, that mentality of wanting your kid to have a better life than your ancestors did and to want to play a real active role in deciding what it is that you do was where they started out, you know, that, that was kind of their default. And then my teacher and my, I think it was also my um, extreme enthusiasm for what I was doing, the, those two things really wore off on them and they became extremely supportive. And it, so I, the way that I describe this to people is that it took a minute, you know, it took them a minute. And that's not any different from lots of other things that you might reveal to your parents at any given time in your, in your life that it often takes them a minute. Oh, and so they were supportive and they ultimately became extremely supportive. And were there performers that you looked up to that you heard on cast albums or saw in movies, anything like that? Oh yes, yes, lots of them. So, you know, there's a new revival of Sweeney Todd, which just opened. And Sweeney Todd was a re re really revelatory show for me. I was obsessed with musicals from the time of being um, I don't know, in my mid-teens, like your age, I guess, is a kind of like a milestone for me, you know, because at the time I had, I don't know, this room downstairs in my, in our house and listened to these albums and sometimes acted them out or sang out loud or, or whatever. And, and also at the time, you know, every cast album came with a lot of liner notes, you know, like written material that came with the album that you would just you know I would I would really obsess about this was my as I as I, I grew up in San Francisco so this was my connection to New York right the only connection a kid like me would have to New York and was the thing that probably made me want to move to New York the most this 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 idea and the romance of Broadway and theater and and musicals and having had this interest, especially in Stephen Sondheim at that time, what was it like when you later got to work with him with Pacific Overtures? And... It was really um, like anyone would think it would be. You know, there's this idea of this person and they mean a great deal of art. I mean, I should have mentioned him as one of the first people too, because he provided for me this incredible landscape of what the musical theater could be. And so I guess I was have always been kind of an out of the box kind of audience member and always gravitated to the material that was a little more sophisticated, a little more interesting and a little more different. And all of the Sondheim shows that came out in the 70s, that was like the golden age. So it, what was it like is your question. It was, an, it was a very validating and moving experience for me. I really, I, I ran with it. I wanted to absorb every moment of it. I was, Pacific Overtures came out right around, it was the same year on the Tony Awards as Coruscant. 
So that year of course line and Pacific Overtures was a really big year for the Tony Awards. And uh, I was very familiar with the original cast album and of the production. And I saw the tour of it, which was the original cast. I waited outside the theater. No, 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 I didn't wait outside the theater. I was leaving the theater and I saw Mako, the original reciter, leaving the theater and I got his autograph on my playbill. And then later, you know, in 2003, I'm, I was playing his part. Right. And so that's all very, you know, really sentimental and wonderful. And for a kid, it's like that has these dreams. It was a really great experience. And, and I so you mentioned that you always knew that you wanted to move to New York from having this connection with the cast albums. But how did the decision come to actually do it? Was it right out of college or...? Yes, um, and it wasn't right out of college, but I'm saying yes to, to acknowledge what you're saying and to remember it and to um, to acknowledge that it was a big part of of how I, you know, w w these decisions about what you're going to do with your life. First, you start out with what it is that you want to pursue, and then it, it becomes how you're going to pursue it. And it was unfortunately greatly informed by the fact that my drama teacher, having kind of given me an incredible theatrical education in high school, kind of spoiled me because when I went to college, I was completely invisible to the, to the program that I was in. It was really sad. And I, I had enough confidence that my teacher gave me from uh, her support of me to know that it wasn't right. It didn't it didn't feel right. I wasn't learning anything. I Nobody was giving me any opportunities. And so I left college after a couple of years. And this is when I made the decision. I think, well, I really just need to go to New York. I had a very strong sense of that about it. And then I came to New York and, and I was kind of right about uh, what my needs were and how I should, what, what I, you know, how I, how, how I should best proceed because I don't think it would have been great for me to stay in the program for two more years. And in, I was just completely overlooked and I wasn't given any kind of, I wasn't being taught anything. Yeah. And I certainly wasn't, I wasn't performing anymore. I was, I was barely performing. And so um, I came to New York and it, it turns out all my friends that went to college at the same time that I did, had to learn a lot of things that I learned in the two years while they were still in school that they at the time didn't teach. They didn't teach at the time that I was in school auditioning or business sense or getting an agent or all that. And, and a lot of these things are now much more part of um, a theatrical education or a college acting major than it used to be. And so I, got, I, I would say I kind of learned by doing and I had a really, and I, and also I give myself credit for not being lazy about it. I mean, I really came here and I really wanted to learn and I was really not just like moving here and just kind of like spinning around in Times Square thinking of how great is it? I, I, I really wanted to learn. And so I, I spent every day auditioning or learning how to audition or asking people something or getting some kind of insight into what the business was about. Okay. And um, it eventually led to me getting more and more work and, and you know, and, and, and all of that. 
Right. And what was the process like of sort of finding your niche in terms of the roles that you would be going up for? I know mm. there were comparatively few Asian actors in New York. And Yes. Well, first of all, I would say I did begin with a very strong musical theater background. And I came to New York to be in musicals. And I, I really, I just loved the, like I said to you before, I loved the, the, the medium so much. And so I began doing coursework and doing a lot of like dinner theater. And I, I never worked, but I got hired for a lot of um, American theme parks. And I eventually got my uh, equity card um, and turned down all these theme parks so that I could uh, perform in a small rock musical that toured schools. It was um, a theater for young audiences contract. The, um, a children's theater contract at the time, and I think it still is actually, is a really wonderful kind of starting place. It's, a, it's real performing and it's real um, uh, rehearsal and real everything, but it's on a, on a manageable scale and it's professional and there are professional things in place that, you, um, that are really great for young, a, a young actor. And that was what I did. And so the roles for me started out being kind of generic and kind of like chorus roles. And then I eventually got um, cast in the first out, outside New York production. It was a tour, but it wasn't really a tour. It only went to two places. It was the first LA company of the original production of Lacajo Fall. And I was in the singing chorus of that production. It had the, one of the two original stars in it, Gene Barry and um, Walter Charles, um, who was also a Sweeney Todd at some point. And um, it went to San Francisco, which was my hometown, which was wonderful. And then it went to LA. And when I was in LA, I stayed in LA. And that's when I became more of a television actor and okay. a film actor by working in small parts in television film. And enjoyed that very much, but found it very limiting and found the, my access to real roles completely um, uh, like a non-starter. I really could not get, you know, you know I, was, I was playing really, barely small parts in like television shows and, and stuff like that. So I was making a living and that was really good. And so it wasn't until I um, spent a, a little bit of time in LA that I also started studying acting uh, in a much more serious way. So I had a great teacher there. And then while I was studying with this teacher, I got an audition for a Broadway play and that was M. Butterfly. That, was, that turned out to be my Broadway debut. And, and my teacher uh, really, really went hard coaching me for this audition and eventually is responsible for me getting the part, I think. And this was a real game changer for me when it came to um, my career and what, what um, would become of me from that point. It, you know, it's kind of um, ironic and, and accidental that I made my debut in a non-musical. And so I never have felt it's the wrong. results of, of being pigeonholed or something like that as a musical actor. 
um, because this is a thing, the classification that is kind of a hard line for a lot of Broadway performers. So I had the advantage of, of that lack of classification and that allowed me to work more in film and more in television. And so then now my relationship to music theater is more as a writer and a director. And, um, and uh, it's, I have a wider landscape than I had before. And it reminds me of and connects back to my drama teacher in high school's um, view of me and her insistence that I do lots of different things. She always said that I should do lots of different things. She wanted me to design the sets and the posters for the show and do the choreography and direct them. And I did that and I stuck around after I graduated from high school because I went to college in my hometown. And I stuck around to direct the shows and, 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 and that kind of thing. So my connecting back with, with being a director and a content creator and a designer is all like um, very organic to me. Right. And so I'm reconnecting to it now because I spent so much time concentrating on acting because it requires one to really put, you know, de de delegate a lot of time and energy. And I realized quite recently, actually, that, oh, wow, I, I have these other things that I really want to do. And I haven't really been able to put the same kind of energy into them. So now I'm putting energy into them and they're, they're satisfying me in a big way. That is great. And so to um to go back for a moment to M Butterfly, I know you were sure. I know you were working there with John Dexter, who could be sort of a notoriously difficult <laughs> director. And yeah. what was that sort of collaboration process like with? Well, it was very difficult. And I I'm very torn in talking about it, um, especially in public, like with someone like you. Um, because it was extremely painful. There were, it was a different time then. And so we didn't call people out for their terrible behavior um, at the time. We just accepted it. Well, we certainly did in this production. And so I was put in terrible and painful um, situations because of him. And he was a kind of a, well, I think at the time people would say he's a taskmaster and he's, um, uh, he'll be, he'll pick somebody in the company to be really hard on. And I was one of the two people that he took out. He was really hard on. And I felt a lot of pressure because I was the, I was new and I and was a huge part. And um, I was, you know, somewhat inexperienced. And he, he, had a, he was very psychological. He, he, in other words, he would make you feel comfortable and, 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 and feel like everything was okay. And then he'd kind of turn on you like real, real suddenly. And oh. then you were caught off guard and then you were really vulnerable. And that happened over and over again with him. So it was somewhat trying for me. I found it really hard and I, I felt of all the great things from that production that I cherish, including my relationship with the leading man, um, John Lithgow, and any number of other opportunities that have come, and my relationship with Laurie Chin, who 
has now is now playing my mom yes. on the television show. Um, it, 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 all of those things are wonderful and positive, and I nothing can take that away. But the the sum total experience is pretty um, fraught for me. The memories of it are really fraught, and um, and yet. Uh, you know, I'm standing and I, I you know, it's, it's nothing like that's terribly, I don't have like PTSD or anything from it. I just, I just, um, I think, you know, like I'm, I'm talking to you right now, right? And you are a younger person. And I think of all of the things that one, a person would do when welcoming, to use a, a very generous phrase, someone into the business or someone into the, 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 the theater, which I, I take very seriously and I feel very strongly about. I find it very unfortunate that, 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 that my takeaway from my experience with him is negative. Okay. And, and that's too bad. You know, he had a great opportunity and, and, I, and I came out okay. Like I, I now have a real strong sense because of my drama teacher, I think, a strong sense of how important it is to mentor kids and to to work with younger students and I love doing it and I love doing it and putting into it a lot of things that I think were missing from my relationship with him. They, a person could not exist now could not they would be what we call canceled now for sure right or the way he behaved thank you I, for sharing that and I'm so sorry that course. that happened oh thanks thank you yes it was a long time ago and and also I think like I said my takeaway is that I learned something quite positive from it. My takeaway is that that's just wrong, and let's let's like let's like I'll break the chain if we can. And sort of um, separate from all of that, I would also be curious to know what was the process like of just sort of developing that character and making it believable as. Oh, this, this is also a great opportunity to say immediately. Thank you for this opportunity to say he did a lot of wonderful things for me. And I think that was part of the complexity of my relationship with him is that he would act as a mentor and a thing, and then he would suddenly become kind of mean and and take away a little, two two steps backwards, three steps two steps forward, three steps backwards. He and so hired the production hired, and it was because of him. The most famous, one of the more well known and the best um, American speech teachers. His name was Robert Williams. Robert Neff Williams, and was kind of employed whenever there was any kind of elevated speech or when there was a maybe a, a person from um, film that wasn't used to being on stage and you would have, you know, hire Robert Williams to come and, and, and coach them. And he coached me and my voice and my voice, my, my, my spoken voice and my, my character was the foundation of my whole character was the voice my voice so he was wonderful and he was a gentle and he was a great antidote to john dexter actually because he was really um gentle and sweet and constructive and knew so much i mean he i am absolutely using the stuff that he taught me to this day without question i am it was a real education in a very short amount of time. And I loved him. He was just great. And then there was training in um, Peking Opera, which is a very specific art form, like musical theater, an art form, Chinese art form, 
that employs um, spoken word singing, movement, dance, and storytelling all kind of wrapped together. Very different from American musical theater, but one of the few international art forms that incorporates all kinds of performance. And a crash course in that, which was uh, really interesting. And, I, and they hired a, a Peking opera star to coach me. And that was a very interesting cultural experience. He didn't speak any English. And so he had his American wife who was the um, translator. And so their kind of dysfunctional marriage and um, our relationship to him as students was really interesting. I, I thought that was, those were really interesting memories. And so the creation of the character came from all of these different new things, new things that I was learning, uh, as well as the what I brought to the table, the things that got me the part in the audition in the first place. Because I did have some things that I brought to the table. Um, I had a strong sense of my own sense of character movement and a sense of the emotional value of the acting and as required in the scenes and all of that stuff. And so all of those things together include, and then on top of it all, um, the, 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 the production designer for the original Broadway production of, of Van Butterfly was incredible. Her name was Eiko Ishioka. She went on to win the Oscar for Bram Stoker's Dracula. And she was an incredible designer, a, a designer of kind of world-class elevated fashion status, not just kind of character, not just kind of storytelling, but just visual opulence. And as, as you can imagine, playing a character that's outside of yourself in any way, the clothes become a really big part of it as well. So that's kind of the final touch that you have on the character. And so I'd say all of those things together were really kind of helped me put it together. It ended up being some kind of recipe for some kind of success. And, yes. um, and, and um, it, was, it was a stunning production. The set that she designed and the costumes alone were really, really amazing. And the production was directed brilliantly. I mean, he, this is, this is, I don't know what happens to people when they are so brilliant or whether it's, it, they're, the two things are related, them being mean and them being brilliant, but um, he was a brilliant director. He really, as soon as you walked into this, to the theater, you knew that you were gonna see something special. Uh -huh. And, it, and he, he, he definitely delivered to the very last moment. And so um, M. Butterfly was your first collaboration with David Henry Huang, who you worked with a few times. And I think the next one, which was also on Broadway for a brief time, was Face Value. And yes. how did that first come about for you? Well, it was very, um, it was very difficult. It was very, it was uh, full of struggle, actually. He had written a play based upon real life events. And in those real life events, I was actually involved in some of those real life events. And the character that he wrote that I was eligible for was not me at all, but was doing things that I did. And I think, I don't really know, but originally the original concept of the production and the, uh, of, the of the director and, and, and Jerry Zachs directed, the great Broadway director, director Jerry Zachs directed the production. For whatever reason, they didn't think it was a good idea to hire me for the show. 
And so I auditioned to play this part and then didn't get it. And another actor got it. And I, I was really disappointed. And I, I felt, uh, I, I was confused actually. I didn't really, you know, I thought, well, I, I, I didn't think anybody could play this part better than I could, but okay. I mean, and you know, of course it's not always about how well you play the part as an actor when you're getting chosen. There's so many different criteria, including your that general vibe, your general energy, your personality, your voice, your stature, your physical appearance. These things are absolutely, um, let's not fool ourselves, a big part of the process. As a director, I see now how many things go into it, chemistry with other actors and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't get the part. The play went into rehearsal and then the play opened in, 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 in the Colonial Theater in Boston. And I think struggled a little bit for whatever reason. And then I came home one day and there was a message on my, a voice message, a message on my answering machine at the time. And Jerry Zachs, I remember his exact words. I'm in trouble, I need you, is what he said. And um, I flew to, Boston to go into rehearsal or no, I've, I know I, I, the, the show was ending its run in Boston. He wanted me to come and see the show in Boston and I saw it. And then we, I came home and they started rehearsal in New York for the New York production and I, they, they brought me in and I came in. So the whole thing was kind of like many sh shows that you hear about in the history of Broadway. Many of them are on the posters at Joe Allen, uh, the famous flop all at Joe Allen. Um, the restaurant, and and they are they, each story of each success and each uh, less than success on Broadway has a story, and the, the story of this one was that it was struggling for whatever reason, and then um, I was brought in in the midst of that struggle, and I didn't help the show at all. I didn't me being in the show or replacing that actor didn't help at all, and. Um, the show closed before it opened. It closed in the previews. It didn't go into its second week of previews. And, um, and that also has to do with funding and whether or not the producer wants to kind of get out before it's too late and, and all of those things that you know about. And um, so it was really hard. It was like the opposite of M Butterfly. It was a very nice director but a very stressful situation and a play that was desperately looking to find its legs. And um, I met some great people in that production um, and that I, you know, I treasure my friendships with some of those people. And Jane Krakowski was in that production. Um, that was one of the first things she ever did. So, you know, I have positive memories of it in, in a way, but, it would, but I do also remember the difficulty of it you know and we've um, we've talked about your process with two original roles that you were creating but i'd be curious to ask what your process is like when approaching a more sort of iconic existing role like pippin or peter pan well the first thing that comes to mind you know the text and when i say the text i mean the text and the music you know the songs the lyrics the the the, the words that are pre-existing are already, the questions have, a lot of the questions have been already asked and answered. And the most exciting thing about being, or one of the most exciting things about being in a original process 
say, a rehearsal for an original show is the unknown of what something actually, how it will actually land or what its intention actually is. You, you, you don't know um, until the audience kind of tells you whether something, one, whether it works or not, but often what it actually means, what its actual effect is. For example, I always say, um, well, my example that I try to give is that, um, you know, Roger Stern Hammerstein wrote The King and I, and Jerome Robbins directed The King and I. And at some point in the direction or the development of The King and I, and I don't know the history of The King and I, so I can't say what this actually is, but let's just talk hypothetically for a second. At some point, Jerome Robbins, I believe, came in and said, I think we should, I'd like to do like a Thai ballet and stop the whole show in the middle of it. And we're gonna have like the guests watching a show within a show, but it's gonna be long and it's going to kind of touch on things that are happening in the show, but it's not really furthering the action of the show. And then after it's over, we'll get back to the show. Now, if you say something like that in a normal rehearsal process, and because, you know, of course, Jerome Robbins is an incredible dance-driven artist. He, uh, his, he lives in a place of dance and movement. And so I wouldn't be surprised, or I assume that it was his energy that made this ballet happen. And, and, and so when you say something like that, there, you know, it is the most brilliant person or the person that turns out that history shows is this most brilliant person because you don't know in the moment that the person is saying something brilliant. You might say, wow, that's really exciting and I'm all on board for that. But you might very well also easily say, that sounds crazy. And I, how can I let you do that to my show? That's, that's not what we're here to do. That sounds very indulgent. It sounds, it's the most or one, arguably one of the most brilliant and dazzling and exciting things about that show is this thing that sits in the middle of it. And somebody has to have the idea of it and somebody has to shake the cart and say, I think that this will be wonderful. And there's an exciting tension to all of those decisions that ever get made. So th to answer your question, what I'm saying is when you do a show that's already been done, you don't have to have that controversial question anymore unless you're changing something. But you know, let's say you're not changing something. In this case of Peter Pan and, and Pippin, I wasn't, we weren't changing anything except that I was a, a man playing Peter Pan for the first time, nobody had ever really done it. And, and so you don't have to worry about what something means in the text or what the audience will get from it, you know what you're, the, the, the points you're supposed to hit. And when you are doing something new, you don't know what those points are. You don't even know, oh, you know, like you'll see something and you'll see a show that you've written or directed run and you'll eventually go, oh, oh, okay. So we're leading to this point, not that point. You know, like the climax is actually in a different place or, or something that is not known to you. But the audience teaches you that and the show actually running teaches you that and the decisions that you make teach you that. But when you do, when I, when you do a classic show, you don't have to worry about those things. This is why when you do a new musical, the process needs to be much more 
longer and in depth and is more costly and requires workshopping and requires um, a longer uh, preview period before the opening and a longer tech period because it's all brand new and nobody's there to say, well, I know what this is going to be. I mean, this is going to happen right here. The, the dance of the gym is going to flow into the next scene. No, the, the scene where, where Maria's in the, in the dress shop and she puts the dress on and she spins around is going to morph into this dance in the gym. We all know that. That's how it's going to be. And I would be curious to know, are there roles that you've either turned down or roles that you would really want to play or did really want to play? I'm a little sad that my the window for me to play the baker in Into the Woods might be closing. I've always loved that show, but I've also really particularly loved that particular character. I think there is a world where I could still do it and I would love to do it someday. And and so that's the one thing that always comes to the top of the front, the front of my consciousness when people ask me that. And um, I don't know. Other than that, that's not, there's, nothing, there's nothing I would actually really want to hang my hat on except for that. I mean, that doesn't mean there aren't other parts that I really want to do. But that one just seems to feel, it's the easiest one to answer. And it seems like it, people understand me when I say that and, and kind of even if it seems like a stretch for them for whatever reason, they can also, they also understand it, so. Oh yeah, that's I'm, what sure. Say. I'm sure that would be great. I'd love to see that. <laughs> Thanks. And so your, your Broadway musical debut came in, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and how did that show first come into your life? And I'm, 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 I'm really um, attaching my involvement in Charlie Brown to a musical review that I did off-Broadway with drama department called S Thousands Cheer. And I don't remember why I'm attaching it now. As I recall, we did S Thousands Cheer in the late 90s, but before Charlie Brown. And I had a song in it um, that was a, a cute, funny song, a solo. It was a, it was a really great, wonderful cast of New York musical actors. Um, and, and Drama Department was a small off-Broadway company that did a lot of very vintage um, period kind of nostalgic um, plays and musicals. Actually, this was one of the few musicals they did. It was an Irving Berlin musical from the 20s, and no, from the 30s. And I had a song in it. And I'm recalling that, I'm not really sure how this, how they, well, I'm, I'm revising history possibly, but let me just tell you that what I remember is that we did a reading of A Thousand's Chair before we did the, uh, before we did the production. Oh, I guess, mm, I'm, I'm not remembering it. It has something to do with A Thousand's Chair. But anyway, I auditioned for Michael Mayer for You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown after this, after, after A Thousand's Chair. And either Michael Mayer saw a thousands cheer or something. I don't remember what it is. I could, could be totally making this up. But, but, the, but the, what I'm not making up and what is true is that I went through a really normal um, audition process for this part and this um, musical. And I, you know, I, I felt, I don't know, I just felt, I felt really uh, surprisingly connected to this role. And I felt like I really understood him 
Hoffman and like I knew how to do him. And um, so I went into this audition with a fa fair amount of confidence. At the time, I was going to a lot of musical auditions and I was putting a lot of energy into the presentations that I was doing. I wasn't just like singing from my book. Like you say, you know, people have a bunch of selections of songs that they do from their book. But I was really like learning new material for each audition and creating a context that made the audition really appropriate for that um, show. It was a lot of work, but I enjoyed doing it. And I also felt like it was to my advantage to do so. And it definitely paid off in this um, case. I tailored my audition to to the um, to the uh, to the to the part and to the production, and and it was wonderful. Uh, it was you know there's only six actors in it, and so we all had a, 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 a slice of this pie, and we all bonded with one another, and it was a really interesting eclectic group of people, and the the play the show was like critically successful and struggled to find its audience, partly because there were um, limitations put on the, on, the, on the publicity from the estate of Charles Schultz, the, 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 the inspirational author or creator of the comic strip. And so you couldn't use certain images in the, in the publicity like you would imagine you would wanna use like, Charlie Brown's face in the thing and you couldn't do it, you know, it was like struggling on a lot of different levels. But it was a lovely production. And it was very, it was a big, like, I had done your good man Charlie Brown when I was a kid, like in high school. And I in, in, a, in the traditionally, productions of Charlie Brown are very small with like building blocks and like no set and, you know, no, no much costumes to speak of. And this was like a Broadway production of Jurgen Man Charlie Brown with hydro, you know, stuff moving on the stage and Doghouse came on the stage and, you know, uh, lots of, you know, production value. Right. They tried to make it as big of experience for the audience visually as they could. And I remember thinking, oh, this feels really weird because it's, I think of this as a very small show, but it was beautiful to look at. And I think people were delighted by it. I don't think it ran as long as they wanted it to, but it ran and um, it ran a few months and uh, it was a great time. It was the time personally when I was deciding to become a parent. And so I was going through a process of a uh, complicated process of, of becoming a parent. And so I have memories attached to um, um, making that decision in my life. I. I made friends with everybody and I'm still friends with everybody and um, have enjoyed watching everybody kind of grow and change and do different things as we've gone from that point on. It was a great cast. Huh. And um, so it, it was a very positive experience. I loved it. I loved okay. it. And what do you think made you connect on sort of a deeper level with the character of Linus and finding your characterization and all that? Well, first of all, um, and, and I would hasten to say, I think you would be a great Linus. Uh -huh. and, and, and I think partly that is because um, of a certain affection for words. I mean, he has a way of speaking that's very um, elevated. And I've always related to this. I was a, a kid who had an extended vocabulary 
and people made fun of me because of it because I used more elevated language than most people. And um, I've always loved words and writing and um, and the effective words and the ability to use different words, you know, not just the same ones that everyone else was using. And and so I related to him on that way because I think he is like that. And I think he kind of sees everything. Um, he's kind of this kind of calming force that everyone you know is watching all of this kind of stuff around him, and he has a takeaway that's very simple. And I like that. There's a lot of kind of neurosis around him, or drama, or whatever. And he never really kind of. I mean, he has a little. He has freakouts here and there, but he doesn't really like. He doesn't. His character does not live in that uber dramatic place and I feel like that in real life and um I admired his sense of humor I thought his lines were really funny and I liked his thing and he was very different from the other characters and the other characters are much flashier they're much more um, energetic and boisterous all the other all the other characters actually I think he's probably the calmest one and so I related to him in that way um yeah i and i think that's basically the answer i think that's i think that's basically it i think that his his core energy and this is why i felt like i was eligible like i was i i was i felt really right for it like when i went you know you go into an audition and you think well i don't know this isn't really my thing but i'll do my best or, or whatever and then sometimes you go oh no i know how to do this i know this particular person i know how to do I know what their energy is. And it doesn't mean you're going to get the part at all. But it, it, it is nice to go into an audition in that way and be able to feel like you're not having to like stretch yourself past a point where it's believable to someone else. Right. And you mentioned, of course, that this was the time that you were considering becoming a father and in that process and all that. And what has mm -hmm. it been like to balance that with being an actor? And did it sort of lead you to a preference for theater or film? Did, did it impact that at all? Or? What a good question. I, 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 you know, this was at 1998 was, I think, was Charlie Brown. And um, I became a parent through surrogacy. And so that is a process that requires a lot of um, technology and it, it's, not, it's more time consuming. It's more than the traditional nine months. In fact, it was, he was, um, um, uh, he wasn't born until um, 2000. And uh, so, and in 2000, I was at a crossroads about working and wanting to continue to work. And, and I got a contract on Law & Order Special Victims Unit, which is a New York television show that shoots in New York. And it was the closest thing I've ever had or ever will have to having a nine to five job. I wouldn't, I knew that as long as I was on this show, and again, history was not, you know, it wasn't clear at the time that the show would actually run for as long as it has, or that it would even run after a few years after I joined the cast, but it did run and I was on it for 11 years. And I was on it for an 11 years that allowed me to stay in New York in a way that I was extremely grateful. And I, I think it was a crucial um, a, a ability, you know, it was a crucial 
thing that I was able to stay in New York for those 11 years. And then towards the end of the time, I maybe did a little um, a, a show or a musical outside of town and went there to do it. He was like older and could come with me or something like that. And um, so uh, that was a big part of the, the my, that, that, that's my answer to the question of how it felt to negotiate the early years of being a parent. I was lucky to be able to have this opportunity to sign this contract and to stay on the show for as long as I did. And at the same time, I became really bored. I, I found it very, um, um, it, 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 it didn't, it wasn't particularly, um, um, it didn't feed my soul as a creative person. I enjoyed it and I am super grateful for it not just for the time of 11 years where I didn't have to leave town, but before the rec, rec, um, the um, exposure that it provided me, which I had not had up until that point, and which is a big part of anyone's recognition of me. You know, they know me from that. They know you, you know, they know you from all different things, people. People know you from all different things, but they know me in particular from this one thing that I did for 11 years, and that makes sense. And so I'm super grateful for that. Um, but but then I had to kind of find myself creatively again in 2011 when it was over, and it took me a, a minute to do that. And then I then I was fine after that. Oh yeah. And speaking of uh, TV and film, I'd love to ask about two projects there that you did, both of which were shows that were built around Asian uh, actresses and comedians. First, Margaret Cho, and then with Aquafina. And yeah. Uh, anything in particular just to talk about them right right just what those have been like to oh well um it was it's really i'm really i have a, a very grateful perspective i'm really grateful for the perspective that that these two shows um separately and together have given me the the the, the show that i did with margaret cho was called all american girl it was in the mid 90s and this was at a time when stand-up comedians were being given uh, sitcoms and and she was a popular stand-up comedian at the time and was given a sitcom like Ellen DeGeneres was and um, Roseanne Barr was given a series at the time and they were new or new faces to people some people though they'd been around a long time and they were kind of legitimized by their um, their their status as, as stars of sitcoms and Margaret's comedy in particular is much edgier and much more um, full of, um, uh, well, she swears and she talks about uh, things that are a little bit less um, middle America friendly, I guess. I don't know how to say it other than that. And she's also a, a person of color. And, and so, the mechanism of creating the show for her was 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 really challenging to the network and to Disney and to they they, they struggled with how to kind of um, homogenize her or tone her down or turn her into a kind of an ingenue when she's kind of at the time was and still is a kind of potty mouth um, uh, wonderfully observant and sometimes angry um, comic. And, and a comic's 
core identity and energy is so important to their success, right? It's what a comic really knows themselves and masters that, that, that answers that question, who am I? And then channels that into a stage persona that can channel the material that they write for themselves. It's when a, when a stand-up comic can do that, that is when they're gonna be the greatest and get the most attention and the most excitement. And so this was the exact opposite of that. This was them telling her what they wanted her to be and her trying really hard in a, in a very um, understandable way to give them what they wanted. And the show struggled as a result. That's the main reason, the kind of core reason why the show struggled because it wasn't true to her. And so as a result, it couldn't really be 100% true to Asian Americans or, or to all of the nuances of the reality of being Asian American, which are sometimes non-issues, you know, completely not nothing. Like a family is a family, you know, the, the, a, a, one of the parents puts dinner on the table and then we come to the table as kids. And that's a universal experience that a lot of American families have in one way or another. And we can all relate to that. That's not related to a person's race at all. Then there's a whole other thing that is related to your race. And, oh, wouldn't that be interesting to fold those things into the show too? They, they couldn't figure out a way to do that without it seeming really um, contrived and um, from a point of view that wasn't an Asian point of view. It, you know, it, this is the thing we've learned since then is that Asian writers and female writers and writers of color and queer writers, they, they have a perspective that is invaluable to a project. They have to share it. They can't, you can't write for someone necessarily. You can be a part of a team that writes for someone. But as soon as someone tries to write for someone else and their experience and approximate it, there's something that gets lost in the translation. So the show struggled and, and yet it was in the mid nineties, which was pretty far on in the history of television. Television had been around for decades already, but it was the first Asian American family ever on television, which is shocking and not shocking at the same time. And so fast forward to my experience with Aquafina, Aquafina it, you know, it's really kind of classically Margaret um, walked so Aquafina could run kind of thing. The existence of Margaret and Margaret's show created a, a precedence for Aquafina's show to exist and another show that came between us, which was Fresh on the Bone. These shows exist so that each show can be um, can learn from the shows before it or whatever. And Aquafina recognized herself the, the, the history of Margaret's show. But Aquafina's show is many of the things that Margaret's show could not be. It is Asian American written. It is written by an Asian American woman and um, showrunner is an Asian American woman. Um, um, Aquafina and Teresa, the showrunner, write the show together and with the staff of people, but they write the show together. And they're all, they are all authentically a lot of Aquafina's actual experiences, ridiculous as it may seem. And the Asian Americanness is is not the primary 
um, driving energy behind it. Everyone or the whole family is Asian. She's in lots of experiences where in scenarios in which her Asianness plays a role. But the show is not about an Asian woman um, or an Asian family necessarily. Um, and so they're not all constantly talking about um, things that are supposedly Asian American. It's just this kind of hapless woman, young woman, uh, kind of a young um, a woman trying to figure out herself in her life. And the surround, her surroundings, her family life and everything are, are connected to her, but they're not the reason for everything. And, and as a result, it's ironically more Asian than all American girl. Um, it just happens to be all, all of the Asian-ness of the show is organically connected to Aquafina herself, the, the character she's playing. And um, so I find that progress. I find that to be really nice to be able to kind of like, like I said before, a lot of my perspective is related to how something feels in the moment. And, you know, like in the rehearsal process, like I said before, and then how you, it is later on, you step away and you go, oh, well, that's what that turned out to be. Well, that's what this means now. When we were in doing All American Girl, it was just, it felt kind of like struggle and, and hard and frustrating. And now we can look back and say, well, you know, there was like a lot of good being done and there, the thing that existed existed for a reason and we learned so much from it. And I'm certainly drawing from it to this day in my experience with Aquafina. So um, these two experiences together are a big part of, of great perspective in my life. I really feel they're really, it's interesting and I feel like it's, um, uh, I, I, I just learned so much from it. And I take a lot from both of these experiences and everything that I do. Oh yeah, that is fascinating. Yes, and so um, on the subject of sort of actually your stand-up comedians, female stand-up comedians, yes. we're of course <laughs> talking about today is Yes, I Can Say That, which is off-Broadway now with Judy Gold. And how yeah. did you first meet Judy Gold? I think she was actually on All American Girl. And... Yes, uh, Judy Gold and I became friends because Judy and the, the All American Girl did not have a large cast of regulars. It was the family and I was Margaret's older brother. And then she, uh, Margaret had two friends in the show, Ruthie played by Maddie Corman and Gloria played by Judy, Judy Gold. And so, it was Maddie and Judy and I and Margaret who hung out together on the show, well, during the show, off screen, you know, when we weren't working. And I got to know Judy during that time. I, I wasn't super close to her, except for in this group's environment, but I always enjoyed a really intense chemistry with her that had to do with kind of pushing the envelope and being crass and um, kind of trying to to say provocative things to each other to see if we could kind of rile them up or whatever. And in, in some cases being inappropriate, but in a way that we felt safe with each other doing, um, you know, like I would let her be inappropriate with me. And then the, the cost of that is that she has to let me be inappropriate with her. And so we would kind of do that, but never with anyone else or never in the presence of other people, except for maybe Margaret and Ruthie, I mean, and Margaret and Maddie. And so my 
relationship with her has kind of remained kind of um, not, you know, not, I, I'm not like in touch with her every day. And until recent years, I have been in touch with her because I have started this text thread with another friend of mine, Anastasia, who was in Pippin with me. And I said, Anastasia and Judy, you guys got to meet each other. And so I made this text thread and we make fun of people on social media or just gossip about things. And I'm an, kind of an insomniac and Anastasia lives in Los Angeles and Judy is often on the road doing comedy and up really late. And so at two o'clock in the morning, which is only 11 o'clock for Anastasia and wherever it happens to be in the country that Judy has flown to, Judy is up and we're up and we're all kind of talking to each other. And it turned out to be this kind of, let's support Judy while she's on the road thing. You know, like, oh, Judy, I mean, you're, you know, like, and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired or I'm so frustrated or these people are so conservative and I can't handle it or whatever. And we would talk and talk and talk into the night or Judy would go to sleep and Anastasia and I would talk on the same thread and then Judy would wake up in the morning and read this long, like 384 texts and go, I can't believe this is all here, but I've read the whole thing and, and I'm all caught up now. And it was just very warm and funny and um, uh, mutually supportive. And then when I, then I got a call from my agent saying that Judy was, I was offering you directing her, sh her show. She's going to do this show. She wrote a book that came out in 2020 about comics and free speech. She's doing the show um, at a, 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 a really nice off-Broadway company, Primary Stages, and what I directed. And I had just directed production of a show that I co-wrote in last musical, a musical that I co-wrote last summer. And I've been directing more and more and really liking it, like, as I've told you, and really enjoying the process of it and really wanting to do more of it. And I said, yes, instantly, and even though I said yes instantly and knew that it was an opportunity for me and that I would have a good time with Judy and that I loved what she was saying and was interested in what she was saying, it paled, that all paled in comparison to what we actually created and how I feel about it, which is that we are both, I think, immensely proud of it. It's extremely expressive. It's very true to who Judy is. It um, covers a lot of wonderful ground when it comes to the conversation about comics free speech, censorship, government intervention, crossing the line, um, uh, the sensitivity of people, cancel culture. All, it covers incredible ground in a short amount of time, 80 minutes long. And it was an opportunity for me to create a show that was not a stand-up set. It was not just Judy standing up there just talking, although she is by herself. And it, well, it is even even a step further than I would say what you would say is like a HBO comedy special, which is also comedy and a person just standing up there. It's much more theatrical. It has production value. It has projections and sound and music and and uh, and it has a real point of view. And it has Judy expressing herself in a way that's really important and really unique and really exciting, actually. And Judy is always is unfailingly hilarious. You can't say that about a lot of people. So the show has a lot, really a lot of things going for it. And I love everything about it. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed getting closer to Judy working on it. And I've enjoyed kind of um, helping to shepherd the material and, and, and 
us all working co in collaboration. She co-wrote the book and the, the show with um, another comic, Eddie Sarfati. And so the three of us kind of shape the show and kind of decide what it is that's most important to say and what it is not important to say and kind of giving it a kind of journey. And the audiences are extremely enthusiastic. And so it's really satisfying to see your friend have this experience and to be able to watch it every night and, and um, uh, cheering, you know, I'm always been, I've always rooted for her, but I've also felt, wow, she has a really important voice and more people should get to hear it. And so that's, this is a step in that direction for me. And um, I really recommend it. It's really so much fun and really gives you a lot to think about. I can't wait to go. Yes, I'm sure. Sure, it is wonderful. I hope that And so I would love to um, close actually by asking you, with such a wonderful career in and out of the theater, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? I love this question. Always love this question because it is so, it can be so many different things. Um, there is a, really no one way for me to approach this question. I mean, as you can see, I love to talk and I talk as much as I feel like I need to. And thank you for the opportunity to do so with you today. But I, I think that when I look back on what I'm, who I was, I think that I, I had a lot of help and I had a lot of um, inspiration and I had a lot of support from my parents, from my teacher not just one teacher, but many teachers and influences around me. And yet at the same time, I had myself and I had my own sense of who I was and a, a tiny light uh, inside me that was at, for many, many years, a hunch of who I was and who I could be. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people, their light gets put out by any number of things that are unfortunate or um, uh, unfair. And so I'm grateful for that light. And I guess what I'm somewhat proud of is my ability at the time when I was younger to access the light and to believe in it and to try to build upon it. And to refuse to believe or to succumb to any kind of negative energy that would threaten it. Because I think that's, uh, any of us who are deciding something that's any kind of a leap for ourselves, it requires a, a great deal of faith in oneself. And yes, it, it, it often comes, and it probably came for me from other people. In other words, Maybe I wouldn't have done this on my own, but other people showed me this version of this light. And I call it a light. That sounds a little bit kind of corny and um, um, pretentious, actually. But, but what I really mean is it's, like it's, just like, it's actually like this thing that um, can be encouraged or not. And, and, and so this, to describe it as a light that can go out is very useful. And, and, and so I want people to be strong and I want people to, to know what it is that they actually want, which is a really hard thing to, a question to answer. What do you really want? And I felt like I knew 
earlier on than most people what I wanted. And that gave me a easier prescription to get it because I knew. And so I, I could also tell you what I don't encourage people to do, what my anti-advice would be, would be to kind of be arbitrary about what you're doing. I mean, you and I know what we are passionate about and what we like and what, we, what we're interested in, but the career specifically that might come from that interest or that passion is not clear. There could be any number of things. And now we know more than ever that just, you know, I was a, a kid who was hammy. You know, I like to make people smile and I would get up in front of people and I wasn't afraid to perform. But what that really means, does it really mean I'm an actor? It could mean that I have any number of different things that I, that connect to this um, impulse that I could, could be. And now you see, you know, for example, what I'm thinking in my mind as I'm saying this is that you watch like a, a Pixar movie and at the end of the Pixar movie, you see thousands of names of people going by. And you think all of those people have a career in something that is related to the storytelling that I'm talking about that I had as a kid. Like I wanted to be a storyteller, I think. I think I discovered I wanted to be a storyteller. But it, the jobs that come that are connected to being a storyteller, and I use the Pixar credits as an example because everyone is a form of being a storyteller on a movie like that. It makes you realize, oh, the, the horizons are open, but you have to be curious. You have to be um, interested. You have to do some homework and you have to look, you cannot, cannot be handed to you. The answer to the question of who you are cannot be handed to you. The answer to the question of who you are is within you and it requires you to dig and to be uncomfortable and to go to a place where you're vulnerable and to, uh, and it's also very exciting. And it, it, it's so many different things. Being a human is so many different things. And, and so I want people to tap into themselves and I want people to be able to be able to say who they are. Being an individual now is more it's more threatened than it than ever, but it's also more. Um, it's also somewhat easier. It's 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 somewhat easier. When I was a kid, people were, you know, queer people were were put in the closet, and they they would were very fearful of coming out. And now there's a little bit more of energy out in our culture and our world that allows us to see that there are possibilities of living a, a healthy and wonderful and profitable and creative and exciting life are there and so we want people to see that and and so nowadays we owe it to ourselves to find out who we are so that we can be that thing it's as simple as that i don't have advice about how to get an agent or what to do uh, you know in a practical way as much those things come naturally from the drive and the energy and passion that you find because you're sure and I guess what drives me crazy is someone says, yeah, you know, I think I'm gonna like try acting. I don't know, just, you know, it seems like somebody said that they thought I'd be good at it or something. And I, I find that, I find that sad and I don't like that. And I, as a person who is really committed to doing the things that I do, I don't appreciate that energy. I don't wanna share the space with a person who's kind of halfway about what they're doing. 
I want us all to be our best self. And our only way we can be our best self is to know who we are and then to figure out the who of who we are in great detail and not a general way so that we can be so full of life and happy with ourselves being in the credits of a Pixar movie or something, you know, that knowing that that thing that you found was the exact right thing for you. Yeah. That is great advice. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such an honor to meet you and a pleasure. And Thanks for having me, Charles. I've really enjoyed talking to you and I really appreciate you giving people this opportunity to just speak and and very, for your curiosity and for your um, energy, which I recognize um, in myself. And so I, I wish you everything good. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by a very special guest, Ben Crawford, who will be the final person to portray the role of the Phantom of the Opera when it closes on Broadway on April 16th. Ben also starred in Shrek, On the 20th Century, Big Fish, Les Miserables, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory on Broadway, as well as Guys and Dolls on the Road, Irma LaDuce, and Merrily We Roll Along at Encores, and so much more. You won't want to miss this episode, so thanks for listening, and make sure to tune back in next time.